welcome to our last Read Aloud program of the year for 2011 anyways. <laughs> but we'll be back second week in the winter quarter with more. Today, we have some special guests for our grand finale. Uh, Brian Leaf and Julia Swanson, who are the Mary P. Key Diversity Resident Librarians, so they're honored guests of the OSU Libraries. They have a whole variety of um, texts that they're going to read from, and I'd like to, if I can, just turn that over to you so you can um, explain to everyone where you're going to start, what you're going to do. Hi, so um, today we're going to read from Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville, and then intersperse that with um, some contemporary texts um, that have been taken from various social media, um, new media content in the American political scene. Um, so it's more of a conversation between some um, more renowned uh, text about America and democracy compared to some of the more um, recent thoughts on what democracy is like in the United States. And then this is just as a disclaimer, it's, um, it's more of things that we found interesting, so it's not to make any sort of political statement, um, just trying to create a conversation between two types of texts. Um, so, and, and to create some engagement um, among all of us. So I think we'll go ahead and get started. Whenever the political laws of the United States are to be discussed, it is with the doctrine of the sovereignty of the people that we must begin. The principle of the sovereignty of the people, which is to be found more or less at the bottom of all human institutions, generally remains concealed from view. It is obeyed without being recognized, or if for a moment it be brought to light, it is hastily cast back into the gloom of the sanctuary. The will of the nation is one of those expressions which have been most profusely abused by the wily and the despotic of every age. To the eyes of some, it has been represented by the banal suffrages of a few of the satellites of power, to others by the votes of a timid or an interested minority, and some have even discovered it in the silence of the people on the supposition that the fact of submission established the right of command. In America, the principle of the sovereignty of the people is not either barren or concealed as it is with some other nations. It is recognized by the customs and proclaimed by the laws. It spreads freely and arrives without impediment at its most remote consequences. If there be a country in the world where the doctrine of the sovereignty of the people can be fairly represented, where it can be studied in its application to the affairs of society, and where its dangers and its advantages may be foreseen, that country is assuredly America. I have already observed that, from their origin, the sovereignty of the people was the fundamental principle of the greater number of British colonies in America. It was far, however, from then exercising as much influence on the government of society as it does now. Two obstacles, the one external, the other internal, checked its invasive progress. It could not ostensibly disclose itself in the laws of colonies which were still constrained to obey the mother country. It was therefore obliged to spread secretly and to gain ground in the provincial assemblies and especially in the townships. American society was not yet prepared to adopt it with all its consequences. The intelligence of New England and the wealth of the country to the south of the Hudson, as I have shown in the preceding chapter, 
Long exercises for the aristocratic influence, which tended to retain the exercise of social authority in the hands of the few. The public functionaries were not universally elected, and the citizens were not all of them electors. The electoral franchise was everywhere placed within certain limits and made dependent on the certain qualification, which was exceedingly low in the North and more considerable in the South. The American Revolution broke out, and the doctrine of the sovereignty of the people, which had been nurtured in the townships and municipalities, took possession of the state. Every class was enlisted in its cause. Battles were fought, and victories obtained for it until it became the law of laws. Volume 1. Chapter 4, on the principle of the sovereignty of the people in America, democracy in America. The foundations of our nation's strength are of, of love, love of liberty and a pioneering spirit of innovation and creativity. These values, inherited from our founders and embodied by all, the, all who came to our shores seeking opportunity, have made the United States the most powerful nation in the history of the world. This is Mitt Romney from um, www.mittromney.com issues. At stake right now is not who wins the next election. After all, we just had an election. At stake is whether new jobs and industries take root in this country or somewhere else. It's whether the hard work and industry of our people is rewarded. It's whether we sustain leadership that has made America not just a place on the map, but the light to the world. President Obama, State of the Union, 2011. Well, can I answer that? One reason people are skeptical is because people don't answer the questions they've been asked. The trillion dollars comes out of the surplus so that you can invest some of your own money. There's just a difference of opinion. I want workers to have their own assets. It's who you trust, government or people. That was October 17, 2000, um, the debate between Al Gore and George W. Bush from George W. Bush. A great distinction must be made between parties. Some countries are so large that the different populations which inhabit them have contradictory interests, although they are the subjects of the same government, and they may thence be in a perpetual state of opposition. In this case, the different fractions of the people may more properly be considered as distinct nations than as mere parties. And if a civil war breaks out, the struggle is carried on by rival peoples rather than by factions in the state. But when the citizens entertain different opinions upon subjects which affect the whole country alike, such, for instance, as the principles upon which the government is to be conducted, then distinctions arise which may correctly be styled parties. Parties are a necessary evil in free government, but they have not at all times the same character and the same propensities. At certain periods, a nation may be oppressed by such insupportable evils as to conceive the design of effecting a total change in its political constitution. At other times, the mischief lies still deeper and the existence of society itself is endangered. Such are the times of great revolution and of great parties. But between these epochs of misery and of confusion, there are periods during which human society seems to rest and mankind to make a pause. This pause is, indeed, only apparent, for time does not stop its course for nations any more than for man. They are advancing toward the goal 
with which they are unacquainted, and we only imagine them to be stationary when their progress escapes our conversation, as men who are going at a foot pace seem to be standing still to those who run. But however this may be, there are certain epochs at which the changes that take place in the social and political constitution of nations are so slow and so insensible that men imagine their present condition to be a final state, and the human mind, believing itself to be firmly based upon certain foundations, does not extend its researches beyond the horizon which it decries. These are the times of small parties and of intrigue. The political parties which I style great are those which cling to principles more than to their consequences, to general and not to special cases, to ideas and not to men. These parties are usually distinguished by nobler character, by more generous passions, more genuine convictions, and a more bold and open conduct than the others. In them, private interests, which always play the chief parts in political passions, is studiously veiled under the pretext of the public good, and it may even be sometimes concealed from the eyes of the very persons whom it excites and impels. Volume 1, Chapter 10, Parties in the United States from Democracy in America. The Republican Party was born in the early 1850s by anti-slavery activists and individuals who believed that government should grant Western lands to settlers free of charge. The first informal meeting of the party took place in Ripon, Wisconsin, a small town northwest of Milwaukee. The first official Republican meeting took place on July 6, 1854 in Jackson, Michigan. The name Republican was chosen because it alluded to the equality and reminded individuals of Thomas Jefferson's Democratic Republican Party. At the Jackson Convention, the new party adopted a platform and nominated candidates for office in Michigan. In 1856, the Republicans became a national party when John C. Fremont was nominated for president under the slogan, Free Soil, Free Labor, Free Speech, Free Men, Free Mont. Even though they were considered a third party because the Democrats and Whigs represented the two-party system, at the time, Fremont received 33% of the vote. Four years later, later, Abraham Lincoln became the first Republican to win the White House. The Civil War erupted in 1861 and lasted four grueling years. During the war, against the advice of the cabinet, Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation that freed the slaves. The Republicans of the day worked to pass the 13th Amendment, which outlawed slavery, the 14th, which guaranteed equal protection under the laws, and the 15th, which helped secure voting rights for African Americans. The Republican Party also played a leading role in securing women's right to vote. In 1896, Republicans were the first major party to favor women's suffrage. When the 19th Amendment finally was added to the Constitution, 26 of 36 state legislatures that had voted to ratify it were under the Republican control. The first woman elected to Congress was a Republican, Jeanette Rankin from Montana in 1917. Presidents during most of the late 19th century and the early part of the 20th century were Republicans. The White House 
was in Republicans' hands under Presidents Eisenhower, Nixon, Ford, Reagan, and Bush. Under the last two, Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush, the United States become, became the world's only superpower winning the Cold War from the old Soviet Union and releasing millions from communist oppression. Behind all the elected officials and the candidates of any political party are thousands of hardworking staff and volunteers who raise money, lick envelopes, and make phone calls that every winning campaign must have. The national structure of our party starts with the Republican National Com Committee. Each state has its own Republican State Committee with a chairman and staff. The Republican structure goes right down to the neighborhoods, where Republican precinct captain captains every election day organization and organizes Republican workers to get out the vote. Most states ask voters when they register to express party preference. Voters don't have to do so, but registration lists let parties know exactly which voters they want to be sure to vote on election day. Just because voters register as Republican doesn't mean they need to vote that way. Many voters split their tickets, voting for and vote for candidates in both parties. But the National Party is made up of all registered Republicans in 50 states. They are the heart and soul of the party. Republicans have a long and rich history with basic principles. Individuals, not government, can make the best decisions. All people are entitled to equal rights, and decisions are best made close to home. The symbol of the Republican Party is the elephant. During the midterm elections, way back in 1874, Democrats tried to scare voters to thinking President Grant would seek to run an unprecedented third term. Thomas Nast, a cartoonist for Harper's Weekly, depicted Demo a Democratic jackass trying to scare a Republican elephant, and both symbols stuck. For a long time, Republicans have been known as the GOP, and party faithfuls thought it meant the grand old party. But apparently, the original meeting in 1875 was the gallant old party. And when automobiles were invented, it also became, came to mean get out and push. That's still a pretty good slogan for Republicans who depend every campaign here on the hard work of hundreds of thousands of volunteers to get out and vote and push people to support the cause of the Republican Party. And this is from the Republican Party overview on the official GOP Facebook site. The history of our country is a history of change. Year after year, we have evolved, innovated, and overcome the major challenges of our time. America's genius throughout has been its ability to renew our promise to provide citizens the opportunity for a better life. And though our own history isn't perfect, the mission of the Democratic Party has been to make that promise a reality. Founded more than 200 years ago, the Democratic Party was born in response to the idea that government should represent the people and that wealth and status should not be an entitlement to rule. Change is the inescapable driver of history in the United States. Our, our party's founders believed then, just as we do now, that being a Democrat means meeting the challenges of changing time so that all Americans 
can prosper. That's why the people of this country have always turned to Democrats when times got rough. In the 1930s, Americans turned to Democrats and elected President Franklin Roosevelt to end the Great Depression. President Roosevelt offered Americans a new deal that put people back to work, stabilized farm prices, and brought electricity to rural homes and communities. Under President Roosevelt, Social Security established a promise that lasts to this day. Growing old would never again mean growing poor. In 1944, FDR signed the GI Bill, a historic measure that provided veterans with the opportunity to go to college and help move our country forward. These investments helped restore America's promise to be the land of opportunity and offered new avenues to expand the middle class. Harry Truman helped rebuild Europe after World War II with the Marshall Plan and oversaw the formation of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. By integrating the military, President Truman helped to bring down barriers of race and gender and pave the way for civil rights advancements in the years that followed. In the 1960s, Americans again turned to Democrats and elected President John Kennedy to tackle the challenges of the new era. President Kennedy dared Americans to put a man on the moon, create, created the Peace Corps, and negotiated a treaty banning atmospheric testing of nuclear weapons. And after President Kennedy's assassination, Americans looked to President Lyndon Johnson, who offered a new vision of a great society and signed into law the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. President Johnson's enactment of Medicare was a watershed moment in America's history that redefined our country's commitment to our seniors, offering a new promise that all Americans have the right to a healthy retirement. In 1976, in the wake of the Watergate scandal, Americans elected Jimmy Carter to restore dignity to the White House. He created the Department of Education and Energy and helped to forge a lasting peace between Israel and Egypt. In 1992, after 12 years of Republican presidents, record budget deficits, high unemployment, and increasing crime, Americans turned to Democrats once again and elected Bill Clinton to get America moving again. As president, Clinton balanced the budget, helped the economy add 23 million new jobs, and oversaw the longest period of peacetime economic expansion in history. And in 2008, Americans turned to Democrats and elected President Obama to reverse our country's slide into the largest economic downturn since the Great Depression and undo eight years of policies that favored the few over the many. Under President Obama's direction and congressional Democrats' leadership, we reformed the health care system that was broken and extended health insurance to 32 million Americans. We reined in a financial system that was out of control and delivered the toughest consumer protections ever enacted. We reworked our student loan system to make higher education more affordable and won the fight for equal pay for women. We passed the Recovery Act, which created or helped to save millions of jobs and made unprecedented investments in the major pillars of our country. From America's beginnings to today, people have turned to Democrats to meet our country's most pressing challenges. We are America's best hope to foster the promise and opportunity ingrained in our history. And we will succeed if we continue to govern by the same principles that made America the greatest nation on earth. This is from Who We Are on the Democratic National Committee website. Democratic communities abound in men of this kind. And in proportion, as the equality of conditions becomes greater, their multitude increases. Thus, democracy not only swells the number of working men, but leads men to prefer one kind of labor over another. And while it diverts them from agriculture, it encourages their taste for commerce and manufactures. 
This spirit may be observed even among the richest members of, of the community. In democratic countries, however opulent a man is supposed to be, he is almost always discontent with his fortune because he finds that he is less rich than his father was. And he fears that his sons will be less rich than himself. Most rich men in democracies are therefore constantly haunted by the desire of obtaining wealth. And they naturally turn their attention to trade and manufactures, which appear to offer the ready, readiest and most efficient means of success. In this respect, they share the instincts of the poor without feeling the same necessities. Say, rather, they feel the most imperious of all necessities that if not sinking in the world. In aristocracies, the rich are at the same time the governing power. The attention that they unceasingly devote to important public affairs diverts them from the lesser cares that trade and manufacturers demand. But if an individual happens to turn his attention to business, the will of the body to which he belongs will immediately prevent him from pursuing it. For however men may declaim against the rule, the rule of numbers, they cannot wholly escape it. And even among those aristocratic bodies that most um, obstinately refuse to acknowledge the rights of the national majority, a private majority is formed which governs the rest. In de democratic countries where money does not lead those who possess it to political power, but often removes them from it, the rich do not know how to spend their leisure. They are driven into active life by the disquietude and the greatness of their desires, by the extent of their resources, and by the taste for what is extraordinary, which is almost always felt by those who rise, by whatever means, above the crowd. Trade is the only open road to them. In democracies, nothing is greater or more brilliant than commerce. It attracts the attention of the public and fills the imagination of the multitude. All energetic passions are directed towards it. Neither their own prejudice nor those of anybody else can prevent the rich from devoting themselves to it. The wealthy members of democracies never form a body which has manners and regulations of its own. The opinions <coughs> peculiar to their class do not restrain them, and the common opinions of their country urge them on. Moreover, as all the large fortunes that are found in the democratic community are of commercial growth. Many generations must succeed one another before their possessors can have entirely laid aside their habits of business. And this is um, what causes almost all Americans to follow industrial callings, volume two, section two, chapter 19 in Democracy in America. Felix Salmon explains the mighty rolling breaker. Ah, to be a surfer on that wave. That is Netflix's share value over the past 18 months in a fashion simultaneously pity and horrifyingly empty. Netflix was for a very long time a steamroller. 
which would justify anybody who tried to short it, until the shorts went away, bruised, bloodied, and beaten. Without short interest, there was almost nothing keeping Netflix stock in the realm of sanity. But then the stock started falling, and all those dynamics were reversed. In a normal company with some kind of short interest, a falling stock price is met with shorts taking profits and supporting the price. In this case, the shorts were few and far between, and they too were enjoying the momentum trade. They weren't covering. Indeed, short interest started going up rather than down. All the momentum traders who were happy making money on the way up were equally happy to try to make even more money on the way down. Essentially, the stock price became a freelance entity divorced from any semblance of corporate fundamentals. For such an entity, when the price is rising, more people buy, driving the price up. When the price is falling, more people sell, driving the price down. There is no equilibrium and no underlying value. Question, how many other stocks exhibit similar properties? Relatedly, at least as seen from my paranoid brain, Chris Ellis and John Fender, economics professors from the University of Oregon and the University of Birmingham, respectively, have a brief summary today of their new paper in the economic journal titled Information Cascades and Revolutionary Regime Transitions. We use the idea of information cascades to develop a, a theory of political regime change brought about by the occurrence or threat of revolution. An information cascade, speaking loosely, is where people make decisions on the basis of their observations of other people's actions. According to the analysis in our study, workers decide whether or not to rebel by observing other workers' behavior, as well as by observing any signals that they may receive about the state of the regime. So if some people rebel, others may follow, thinking that their rebellion may be a sign of the regime's weakness. If enough of them rebel, there is a successful revolution and the rulers are overthrown. The model can explain why revolutions are often a considerable surprise to virtually everyone, spectator, er, participants and spectators alike, something that is clearly applicable to the currently unfolding events of the Arab Spring, where there are information cascades both within and between countries. The authors add, we have not mentioned the role of such cascades in the financial crisis, but Undoubtedly, such cascades are important for many of the events of the crisis, and more generally, may be important for the stock market. Today, the 17 leaders of the Eurozone countries are meeting to try to prevent a cascade imparting negative information about the value of government debt in southern European economies. While we wait to see whether or not leaders can come to a comprehensive agreement, European stock markets are holding essentially flat as is the spread on yields between Italian and German 10-year bonds. If leaders fail to come up with an agreement, we're likely to see those spreads jump up again as they did in August. Traders will test the waters to see whether they can break the European Central Bank's half-hearted commitment to keeping spreads low by repurchasing bonds in the secondary markets. If some traders successfully short Italian debt, others will follow their example and prices will plummet. Where else are the masses of people making decisions on the basis of their observation of other people's actions? Six weeks ago, people started camping out to protest various inequities of economics and government in New York City. That led other people to camp out in Boston and London and Amsterdam and about 100 other cities around the world. Does this add up to anything? I'm not really sure. 
Once you boil the fancy term information cascade down to people imitating each other's behavior, it doesn't look like much of an insight. Still, it does look like changes in information technology are leading to more rapid coalescence of these types of herd behavior, and that this is leading to a more unified global society in which there are more positive feedback loops, fewer natural checks on self-exacerbating mass phenomena, and the lower probability that things in any given sphere will tend towards an equilibrium rather than cycling wildly between various creative and or disastrous extremes. This is an article titled Information Cascades, written by MS on October 26, 2011, in the Democracy in America, uh, which is an economist blog. Following the loss of visionary Apple co-founder Steve Jobs, President Obama released this statement. Michelle and I are saddened to learn of the passing of Steve Jobs. Steve was among the greatest of American innovators, brave enough to think differently, bold enough to believe he could change the world, and talented enough to do it. By building one of the planet's most successful companies from his garage, he exemplified the spirit of American ingenuity. By making computers personal and putting the internet in our pockets, he made the information revolution not only accessible, but intuitive and fun. And by turning his talents to storytelling, he has brought joy to millions of children and grown-ups alike. Steve was fond of saying that he lived every day like it was his last. Because he did, he transformed our lives, redefined entire industries, and achieved one of the rarest feats in human history. He changed the way each of us sees the world. The world has lost the visionary, and there may be no greater tribute to Steve's success than the fact that much of the world learned of his passing on the device he invented. Michelle and I send our thoughts and prayers to Steve's wife, Lorene, his family, and all those who loved him. And that was from, that was President Obama on the passing of Steve Jobs. Why so many ambitious men and so little lofty ambition are to be found in the United States of America? The first thing that strikes a tribe traveler in the United States is the innumerable multitude of those who seek to emerge from their original condition. And the second is the rarity of lofty ambition to be observed in the midst of the universally ambitious stir of society. No Americans are devoid of a yearning desire to rise, but hardly any appear to entertain hopes of great magnitude or to pursue very lofty aims. All are constantly seeking to acquire property power and reputation. Few contemplate these things upon a great scale. And this is more surprising as nothing is to be discerned in the manners of, or laws of, of America. Of America to limit desires or to prevent it from spreading its impulses in every direction. It seems difficult to attribute this singular state of things to the equality of social conditions. For as soon as that same equality was established in France, the flight of ambition became unbounded. Nevertheless, I think that we may find the principal cause of this fact in the social condition and democratic manners of, of the Americans. And this was um, volume two, section three, chapter 19, 
in democracy in America. So as the Chicago Humanities Festival mulled the state of American news media on Wednesday night, the Republican presidential candidates faced off on the economy. Together with the research out of the University of Chicago, the events helped me clarify a significant misconception. Perhaps it's not media fragmentation that polarizes a culture. Our nemesis may be ignorance. At the festival, Clara Jeffrey, a co-editor of Mother Jones Magazine, interviewed David Carr, an incisively idiosyncratic media writer for the New York Times. The interview avoided the often self-important toper of such discussions and provided an entertaining hour. The assembled were a typical festival audio audience, hyper-caffeinated, engaged, and probably left of center polit politically. It was not a leap to interfere there and at a subsequent Mother Jones fundraiser that we are indeed increasingly and imperiously drawn to news media that reaffirm our personal ideologies. But maybe that potent premise is wrong. It's certainly brushed aside in ideological segregation online and offline. A research paper by Matthew Genskow and Jesse Shapiro of the Booth School of Business at the University of Chicago. They analyzed data on both online and non-internet news consumption and face-to-face -face social interactions and concluded that there's far less ideology-driven news consumption than, than we assume. The origin of the paper was a sense that the conventional wisdom was wrong. Mr. Getz Genskow said in an interview, we had looked at a survey at survey evidence a few years ago and there seemed to be less segregation than you think. So we asked if we could get data good enough to document the extent to which it's true. Their handiwork openly challenges the view that Cass Sunstein, a prominent legal scholar and former university colleague who runs the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, expressed in his 2001 book, Republic.com. Mr. Sunstein wrote that we were moving towards a society in which people restrict themselves to their own points of view. Liberals watching or reading mostly, their, mostly only liberals, Moderates, moderates, conservatives, conservatives, neo-Nazis, neo-Nazis. Mr. Genskow and Mr. Shapiro show that online news consumption is concentrated in a few centrist sites like yahoo.com and cnn.com. While one looks at the total audience for ideologically driven sites, those numbers are rather small. Meanwhile, they say consumers of news media that are seen to symbolize a point of view, like the New York Times on the left and Fox News on the right, are more liberal and conservative, respectively, than the average consumer. Those consumers are often political junkies, themselves a small group, who are wide-ranging in their consumption. Thus, 
those inspecting Rush Limbaugh's or Glenn Beck's sites are more likely than a typical online newsreader to have visited than to have visited nytimes.com, the paper says. And visitors of extreme liberal sites like thinkprogressive.org and moveon.org are more likely than a typical online newsreader to have visited sites like foxnews.com. The research did not inspect local, local television news, an important source for many that media analysts often overlook. Their paper concludes that ideological segregation online is low in absolute terms, higher than most offline media, excluding national newspapers, and significantly lower than segregation in most normal social interactions people have. Internet news consumers with homogeneous news diets are rare, the authors wrote. These findings may mitigate concerns expressed by Sunstein and others that the internet will increase ideological polarizations and threaten democracy. What might this have to do with the Republican debate? A postmortem by Bloomberg News eviscerated many claims by the candidate, including some on government regulation, bailouts, Medicare taxes, student loans, and median incomes. At a minimum, the lack of knowledge suggested intellectual laziness. That's in sync with the population that may care less and less about government and world affairs, a problem exacerbated by a declining education system and a lack of civic instruction. It led me to another little-nosed effort by Mr. Gens Genskow and Mr. Shapiro and Michael Skinson of Harvard Business School. The effect of newspaper entry and exit on po electoral politics. That paper argues that the decline of the, news of the newspaper matters. People who read an actual paper participate more in politics. And don't be fooled by the obvious shift of audiences online, they conclude. There is no comparison between time spent consuming news in print and spending time consuming news online. It's minutes versus seconds. That's why ignorance may trump ideology as a real curse. And this is from um, a New York Times article written on November 12, 2011, entitled Liberal or Conservative, the Problem is Ignorance, um, by James Warren. It is of the very essence of democratic governments that the empire of the majority is absolute. For in democracies, outside the majority, there is nothing that resists it. Most of the American constitutions have also sought to augment this natural force of the majority artificially. Of all political powers, the legislature is the one that obeys the majority most willingly. Americans wanted the members of the legislature to be named directly by the people and for a very short term in order to oblige them to submit not only to the general view, but even to the daily passions of their constituents. They have taken the members of the two houses from the same classes and named them in the same manner so that the motions of the legislative body are almost as rapid and no less irresistible than those of a single assembly. 
Thus, the legislature, thus constituted, they have united almost all the government in it. At the same time that the law increased the force of powers there were naturally strong, it enervated more and more those that were naturally weak. It accorded neither stability nor independence to the representatives of the executive power, and in submitting them completely to, to the caprices of the legislature, it took away from them the little influences that the nature of democratic government would have permitted them to exert. In several states, it left the judicial power to the election of the majority, and in all, it made its existence depend in a way on the legislative power by leaving to the representatives the right to fix the salary of the judges each year. Usages have gone still further than the law. A custom that in the end will make the guarantees of representative government vain and spreading more and more in the United States. It very frequently happens that electors, in naming a deputy, lay out a plan of conduct for him and impose a certain number of positive obligations on him from which he can in no way deviate. It's as if, except for the tumult, the majority itself were deliberating in the public square. Several particular circumstances also tend to run the power of the majority in America, not only predominant, but irresistible. The moral empire of the majority is founded in part on the idea that there is more enlightenment and wisdom in many men united than in one alone, and in the number of legislators than, their, than in their choice. It is the theory of equality applied to intellects. This doctrine attacks the pride of man in its last asylum, so the minority accepts it only with difficulty. It habituates itself to it only in the long term. Like all powers, and perhaps more than any of them, therefore, the power of the majority needs to be lasting in order to appear legitimate. When it begins to establish itself, it makes itself obeyed by constraint. It is only after having lived for a long time under its laws that one begins to respect it. The idea of the right to govern society that the majority possesses by its enlightenment was brought to the soil of the United States by its first inhabitants. This idea, which alone would suffice to create a free people, has passed into Moors today, and one finds it in even the least habits of life. This is chapter seven um, in volume one, part two of Democracy in America, and it was entitled on the omnipotence of the majority in the United States and its effects. And that is all that we have today. <laughs> so you guys have any questions that aren't too difficult? <laughs> Who wrote Democracy in America? But you quoted it a couple times. Like, oh, the, the, that was Alexis de Tocqueville. He's, um, he was a French philosopher. Um, in the early 1800s. So it was published in like 1800 or something? Uh, yes. Actually, yeah. like 1700s, but it's early 1800s. We actually used uh, two different translations. There was, um, there was a translation by Henry Reeve done in the 1800s, and then there's a more recent one done by Harvey Mansfield in 2000. And that last one. Thoughts, questions?